On January the 18th, 2012, the game changed forever. Large well-known websites censored or blocked their own content for 24 hours in protest of a bill which they said would lead to censorship of the internet, restrict their activities as a website and service provider, and cause distress and anger for every internet user. Over the last few months, debates have been spilling over from political and social arenas on the subject of online piracy. Most recently, in the debate surrounding SOPA, the American Stop Online Piracy Act. So, where did this all start? How did we get to this point? Is it really just a cut and paste issue with clear answers, or does it require a little bit more investigation and pondering? In this podcast, I'm going to attempt to answer that. And I hope you'll join me as we venture into the world of online piracy, intellectual property, and try and build some bridges between the two sides of this thorny issue. I hope you'll join me as we venture into a digital frontier. The SOPA bill was introduced into the U.S. House of Representatives just a few months prior. By a Texas governor who wished to expand the ability of U.S. law enforcement to fight online trafficking in copyrighted intellectual property and counterfeit goods. If this bill was passed, ISPs and search engines would be banned from providing access to or providing a link to a website holding copyright material. If you were caught hosting a stream of content that didn't belong to you, you could face jail time or a fine, thereby protecting the intellectual property of the content creators. Changes will be made to the system underpinning computers being able to access each other's information in order to make these changes. Internet service providers will be forced to cut access to the sites in question until they're compliant. We've all heard the advert: "You wouldn't steal a car, you wouldn't steal a handbag, but would you steal a DVD, a film, a book, a picture, a program, an idea?" Once, if you wanted to steal a video, you had to physically take it from a shop. It would take time, energy, money, and a risk that you'd be caught. Now, of course, you just have to press a key. You download from a peer-to-peer -peer client, and bingo! Much as when you used to have to go down to the shops to buy a CD magazine, risking the shame of it all putting you off. Now, all the seediness in the world is downloadable straight onto your computer or smartphone. The architecture of media has changed forever. The things that were once not tempting in the least, just because they were so hard to get at, are now freely available. If we download music or a film or a program we haven't paid for, is it really stealing? What about the person who spent long hours making it? For example, the company needs to pay him, but to do so, they need to make a profit on what they make. So, how will they make a profit to pay the guy if we don't pay them for their product? So far, so good. But what about something like YouTube? Can I watch a cartoon on YouTube? Can I watch a, a remix of a video that someone has made without the copyright holder's consent? You know, what about a TV series I really want to watch but isn't available to buy yet? It's sitting there on YouTube, and no one's going to get hurt, as far as I know, if I watch it. And you know, I intend to buy the box set in future. Honest. Or you know, can I download that game that came out years and years ago that I don't have a console for anymore, but I still want to play on? Surely that's okay. I mean, no one will miss it. We need to rethink, or perhaps just think, what to say about this. The fact is that the lines, which were once relatively clear, have now been muddied by a sea of grey. While the rights and wrongs of online piracy and intellectual property are not immediately clear, the SOPA protest, as it's now been called, has called this issue into sharp focus, with people taking sides at an ever-increasing pace. So, what was all the fuss about? 
Well, this letter signed by hundreds of large U.S. corporations put this into perspective. IP-intensive industries are a cornerstone of the U.S. economy, employing more than 19 million people and accounting for 60% of exports. Rampant online counterfeiting and piracy presents a clear and present danger to American jobs and innovation. A study examined approximately 100 rogue sites and found that these sites attracted more than 53 billion visits a year, which averaged out to approximately nine visits for every man, woman and child on Earth. Global sales of counterfeit goods via the internet from illegitimate retailers reached $135 billion in 2010. The theft of American intellectual property is the theft of American jobs. We can hear the rhetoric, can't we? But they're right in one way. A lot is at stake. The economy, jobs, innovation, the American dream itself is up for grabs. And what are the pirates doing? They're counterfeits. They're rogues, they're illegitimate retailers, they're thieves. It's black and white, cut and dried. They're the bad guys and we're the good guys. And sometimes we go along with this, don't we? We have this mental image of an internet pirate, some nerd in a dark room with an evil glint in his eye, a computer full of illegal files, and of course no doubt he's a hacker as well, no doubt he has other shady dealings going on behind his closed doors. No doubt he stands for everything that opposes the American dream, or whatever ideology you prefer. When this bill was first drafted, I doubt that the representatives had a clue what was coming. The anti-SOPA backlash was swift and decisive, with the potential ramifications of the bill spreading across web fora and social media faster than a particularly humorous picture of a cat with an amusing caption. The producers behind such websites as Wikipedia and YouTube, as well as their users, were outraged that this bill had the potential to ban websites in the US and across the world from being used in the way that they were intended. The Web 2.0 generation, for whom content and user interactivity is key, decided enough was enough. On January the 18th, it happened. Almost 150,000 websites either went dark or posted prominent anti-SOPA messages as a protest of what they said would happen if this bill were passed. Most prominently, Wikipedia, which was unusable for the English-speaking world for 24 hours, replaced by a page urging people to contact their representatives to beg them not to support this bill. Jimmy Wells, the well-known founder of Wikipedia, said this. Free speech includes the right not to speak. Wikipedia is a community of volunteers. We have written this and we believe that it is a gift to the world. We don't charge people for it. It's freely available to anyone who wants to use it. We are a charity. And I think it's important for people to realise that the ability of our community to come together and give this kind of gift to the world depends on a certain legal infrastructure that makes it possible for people to share knowledge freely. The blackouts received wide news coverage and the effect was immediate and almost unprecedented. The Boston Herald, critical of the blackouts by what they called cyber bullies, reported that representatives who had formerly supported SOPA were dropping like flies. Perhaps the final nail in the coffin was when Tim Berners-Lee, the media-proclaimed creator of the World Wide Web, scathingly attacked SOPA, saying, The laws have been put together to allow an industry body to ask the government to turn off a website, and the government can make people turn off the site without trial. There are times when that could be very powerful and damaging, like before an election, and it is crossing the line, and we have to protect the internet as an open space. We have to respect it. A few days later, SOPA and its sister bill, PIPA, were indefinitely shelved. 
if not dead and buried, then mortally wounded and unlikely to rise again for round two. During the protest, I was somewhat struck as a practicing Christian that I actually didn't feel like I had much to say about this subject. I pondered and I mused, probably while I should have been doing other more important things, and I was struck by how little I could find online from other Christians, either involved with or having to something to say in the midst of this larger debate that SOPA had begun. Not just this unpopular bill, but about the whole realm of intellectual property and online piracy. And this got me thinking. Maybe, to be honest, most of us aren't too keen on ethical dilemmas. Life is busy enough as it is, but between our working lives and our leisure, we have enough on our plate to deal with without wading into the murky waters of philosophical grey areas. Let's leave those to the philosophers. And that would be okay if it were just that, if it were just a philosophical puzzle. To be honest, we certainly treat some ethical dilemmas like this, especially when the media exaggerates the claims of both sides in a supposedly black-and-white debate. In the red corner, we have the noble creators of content and jobs and intellectual property, boosting our economy and giving us great value entertainment. And of course, on the other, we have the stereotype of an internet pirate out to make a misery of hardworking musicians and artists by refusing to pay for the content that, like everyone else, and leaving the content creators out of pocket and out of the job. Or perhaps in the red corner, we have the greedy, overpaid, eagle-eyed Hollywood monster the Motion Picture Association of America, holding claims to own the right to charge us for ideas and intellectual property, screwing the average Joe out of every penny, facing off against the courageous internet denizens who want nothing more than a free flow of information, an open source internet where content is freely available and no one is excluded from knowledge or entertainment because of their poverty or country or race. I hope perhaps that you might be wise enough to steer clear of affirming either stereotype. Sure, there's truth in either, and I'll leave you to work that those for yourselves. But I don't think life is ever quite so straightforward, is it? I'd like to suggest that this bill, and indeed the whole area of intellectual property, boils down to the problem of ownership. What really belongs to us? What do we actually have that we can call ours? What's really our property? This thorny issue is key to the piracy debate. In Bowery's helpful book, Law and Internet Cultures, attempting to explain internet to the average Joe on the street, like me, uh, she explains that one of the problems is that the internet is by nature an organic beast, something that no one thought up or dreamt up in particular, but the product of a billion minds that no one person or group controls or has a say over. Likewise, the laws in every country that govern the concept of ownership in relation to the net have had to grow organically, like the internet itself. One of the things that is interesting about this open debate is that it's addressing a well-known problem that's been around for years, but that current legislation hasn't managed to do much about. This belies the media stereotype that people pirating copyright material are just a few troublemakers. Everyone's doing it. From the Wikipedia editor who used a picture of an image that they don't own, to the YouTube user who remixes a pop song, to the person who buys a CD and shares it with a friend. Everyone's doing it, and it's getting easier to do. Rarely does a book or a film or a song come out on release without it being leaked, accidentally or on purpose, onto the net for anyone to get a hold of. And I wonder why. Is this because our generation values content less? Is it just that we're less moral? I'd like to think not. I think perhaps instead we're just faced with a moral maze. 
We know that we wouldn't steal a car, I would hope, as our stealing of it deprives the other person of its use. But when we download something, or take someone's idea or image or story and use it, we're not depriving anyone else. In fact, some would say we'd make it more available than it was before, not less. What is legal has to be reconsidered in the light of consumer behaviour, so the lawyers say anyway. When a law becomes impossible to enforce or to coerce people to follow, the laws need to be, look at, be looked at again, and lawmakers take one of two choices. You either change the law and open the floodgates, or you tighten the law and restrict access even more. And I think as a society, and as a global community, we're at a stalemate. Thank you for listening to my podcast. I hope that you'll join us for the second half of The Digital Frontier. We'll be looking at a Christian perspective on piracy and intellectual property. This has been Tim Dixon. Thanks for listening.